with all. Um, but I want to talk about offense. And the word offense in the New Testament comes from the Greek word scandalon, meaning the name of the part of the trap that the bait is attached to. It's the trap or snare itself. It's, it's that, that piece of, you know, if you could even think of a mouse trap with me, that little place right there where that bait is set on it that is the temptation for us to go in and grab it, right? Offense is an annoyance or a resentment, an action of attacking someone, a breach or an illegal act. It also carries the meaning of a stumbling block, something that becomes a hindrance and causes people to fall away from, uh, from their faith in Jesus. See, when we grab a hold of the bait of offense, we do the enemy's bidding. See, he comes and he sets the trap, right? Through wounding, offense, sin, whatever it is, whatever, whatever the thing is, right? And he sets the bait, but he's, but he's wily, right? He doesn't just come out in a red suit with a pitchfork and pointy ears and, you know. He, he is wily. He is deceptive. He is sneaky. Here's what I want us to know. What we do with an offense because they're going to come, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. What we do with an offense determines the course or direction of life. That's right. If you're breathing, you're going to have the opportunity to be offended, right? Like, it's just going to come day in and day out. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. Every day, we will be faced with the opportunity of whether to pick up an offense or whether to just move on. Luke 17:1, Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. In the King James Version, it says this, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. We're going to read a, bit, a little bit more about that. As soon as Jesus says that, it is impossible, but that offense will come. He says, so watch yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Upon hearing that scripture, it says, the apostles cried out to the Lord, increase our faith. See, what were they saying there? When they cried out, increase our faith, it wasn't because they had seen miracles and they needed more faith faith to perform miracles. They had seen Jesus heal the deaf. They had saw him give sight to the blind. They saw the lame walk. They cast out demons. But what made them cry out, increase my faith, was at the admonishment of Jesus saying, forgive beyond your expectation to forgive. Release, let go, walk away from the bait. Become unoffendable beyond your measure of what you think is the limit, is the bar of what I can go, I, I can't look past that. Come on, we all have a measure, right, when it comes to offense. That's right. Come on. We all have one. We don't talk about it. We don't say it out loud. You hurt me once, we got to say it. You hurt me once, shame on me. I don't even know how the saying goes now. I just lost it. <laughs> Hurt me twice, shame on you, right? Or backwards. Backwards. Okay? But we have this thing internally that says there is a measure to offense. 
But Jesus right there says to them, beyond any expectation you have of what you are capable of, I am saying in my kingdom there is a different order, and in my kingdom we keep moving in. We keep pressing on. We keep moving forward. Because when we take the bait in that snare, in that trap, we're caught. And when we're caught, we can't freely move forward. We can't freely move about. We can't freely give and receive in the way that God intends for us, right? 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. You want to know why it's hard for us to forgive offense or to overlook an offense or to let an offense go? Right here. Because in our flesh, we don't like the grace of God. Come on. We love grace when it's all about us receiving grace. We don't like grace when God says to us, I'm, you are going to be the conduit from which I flow grace out. I know they don't deserve it. I know it's flying right in the face. And we go, whoa, too much. Too much, God. <clears throat> Here's what I know. Offense pulls us into captivity, and those who are offended by one another are taken captive by the devil to do his will. And most people don't even know that we're offended, especially in the church. We put on this self-righteous robe and think, oh, no, nothing bothers me. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. All the while, we're seething inside, right? Mm. Mm. See, when a hunter goes out to hunt, he lays a smart trap. If he's, if he's a good hunter, he lays a smart trap. The trap is not obvious. It's very subtle. It's the same with you and I. If the offense was obvious, we wouldn't fall for it. Jesus' disciples asked him to tell them how they will know the signs of the end times, how they would know that the end times are drawing near. And this is what Jesus said. At that time, many will turn away from their faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. In other words, because of the increase of offense. The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. What he's saying there is many will be offended. Then there will be a progression. Offense leads to betrayal. Betrayal leads to hatred. Hatred leads to a cold heart. And a cold heart leads to deception. Proverbs 18, 19 says, an offended brother is more yielding, more unyielding than a fortified city, and disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. So what is a barred, a fortified and barred city? It's a city with walls built around it. It's a stronghold. And when offense comes, Jesus is saying in that, when the offense comes, our temptation is to wall ourselves off, to build a fortified place around our hearts around our relationships. And here's what, here's what else I know. When offense comes, 
closely tied to it is judgment. We look at the person, and now it's no longer just about the offense. We begin to attack identity. We begin to to lay the gavel down in judgment and say, you're never going to change. This is always the way it's going to be, and I pronounce judgment on you, and you're stuck. Listen, we even do that with ourselves. Some of us need some freedom from slamming that gavel down every time the enemy brings some accusation and we take the bait. Even though we've taken that thing, right? We've taken it to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says to us, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. See, we're to cast down the reasoning, the logic, the high thing. Every thought is to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought that is contrary to God's ways Every thought that is contrary to God's word. God's word is the reflection of his nature. His love, love of God, seeks to stay in, stay in, stay in. Now hear me. What I'm not saying here is is that we're just to turn a blind eye to sin. And we're going to talk about that. So if that's running through your head right now, hang with me. We're going to get there. So let's get back to the point that offended people build walls like a fortified city. There's a wall that goes up due to the offense and they seek to protect. We begin to operate in self-protection. What's the problem with that? What is the problem with self-protection? You're not your own anymore. Jesus purchased the right to be your protector. On the cross, he said, I'm gonna give you everything I have. And all that I have, all the protection, all the resources that I have, I am going to pour out in protection and covering over you. And when I rise up in self-protection, I go, thanks, but no thanks. That's right. Come on. Good. We no longer are then seeking to give. The focus is no longer on giving and pouring out, but on protecting what I have. It's kind of like the Lord gave me these two pictures. It's kind of like I've been to um, Israel and I've seen the Dead Sea and I've seen the Sea of Galilee and we're much like one of these two seas. In the Sea of Galilee, it freely takes in the rains, it freely takes in the waters, and it freely gives out. It's loaded with life, right? But the Dead Sea, it's the same water flowing into it, the same rains, the same floods flow into the Dead Sea. But in the Dead Sea, it only takes in, but it never gives out. And the result is there's no life, and everything that flows in dies. That's right. Because it hangs out onto, because it hangs onto everything that it brings in. See, it's much like that. When God asks us and, and pours out and showers out upon us the things of the kingdom of God, I'm actually going to turn this. Can you help me turn this? Um, it's in, I'm, I'm big about making lists for myself so I can visually see what God is asking of me, right? I, I'm just, I guess I just learned that way. But listen, 
when offense comes, the kingdom of darkness has an order and a way of operating. And when offense comes, he wants to usher in his culture. And in his culture of darkness, when offense comes, his, his temptation is for us to operate in bitterness and anger. And, and we become the accuser and the condemner, right? He doesn't have to do it anymore. He gets us to be the voice box. He gets us to be the one to pronounce the judgments which come next and the bondage and the fear and the strife and the torment and the punishment and retaliation. This is what he's begging us to agree with and align with. But not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, God says, listen, it's to your glory to overlook an offense. It is to your glory. Why? Because we don't get stuck like the Dead Sea. See, God's wanting to shower out forgiveness and mercy and grace and love and honor and joy and peace and kindness and blessing and freedom into our lives. But when we choose to operate physically out of this side of the kingdom, it could stop up. And there's no room for more grace. There's no I want to be a conduit where God's kingdom just flows freely in and out. I receive and I give out and I receive and I give out. and I re It's this dance. It's this rhythm of life to where I receive what I need from him. And in receiving what I need from him, I can flow it out to others. We have to remember Jesus freely has given and we freely received. And he says to us, what you have freely received, freely without attachment, freely without holding on, you give. Not because he's sadistic, right? But because he's a generous God and he wants to give us more. He's given us love and grace and mercy and kindness. And if we want to enter into the life, right, if we want to enter into the abundant life, the overflowing life that God has for us, we will be that conduit. So what happens is a person who's been offended says, I've been hurt, and I don't want to be hurt again. Come on, how many times have we said, I've been hurt, I don't want to be hurt again? The problem is there are principles in the kingdom of God. There's the principle of reaping and sowing. That what I pour out, I'm going to reap back. So listen, if I'm pouring out anger, what am I receiving? It is impossible to receive anything else but anger. There is a principle in the kingdom that what we pour out, what we sow into, we will reap. It may not be, listen, do not, do not um, think that God's... Uh, waiting and his timing in in allowing that crop to produce is him going hey you're good it's okay for you to be bitter right there or you're good it's okay for you to be offended over there in this you just keep sowing in that you just keep reaping that it's okay this time do not mistake god's kindness do not mistake god's faithfulness to be patient as his dismissal of what is about to come to harvest. Because it's coming. And listen, if it doesn't show up in you, unfortunately, it's going to show up in that kid or that grandkid or your great-grandkid or your great-grandkid. It's going to show up because he does not dismiss sin. And this is sin. We don't like to call it that, but that's what it is. It's sin. 
and God deals, deals with sin as lovingly as he possibly can. But make no mistake, there is a day coming that it's all going to be reconciled. And I want to be one that can stand before him and say, thank you, Lord, that you convicted, that I responded, and that I chose. But here's the thing. Where am I going? <laughs> oh, here, I want to say this too. There's a couple other principles in the kingdom of God, like the principle of the law of multiplication. See, we don't like to talk about that either. Like, if I plant an apple seed, do I get one apple seed back? Not even in the natural is that law limited to one, one. If I plant a seed, I am getting a crop. And it is that way, whether we are planting blessing or whether we are planting curse, you are going to reap in multiplication because God is a multiplying God. He is a generous God. <clears throat> but there's a superior way. All these defense mechanisms go up in our minds and in our subconscious they develop patterns of thinking, reasonings to protect ourselves from getting hurt again and again. But there's a better way. There's a superior way. And God says, listen, in light of these things, we're going to respond different. As children of God, we're going to respond differently. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to your glory to overlook an offense. God calls us to overlook or minimize someone's offense. Overlooking does not mean denial. We don't go around with blinders on our eyes. But overlooking means to take no notice of, to not attend to. The word overlook conveys the idea of passing by or moving through and beyond. It doesn't mean ignore. That's impossible. Sin hurts. Offense wounds. It is impossible to just go, oh, I'm good, oh, I'm good, oh, I'm good, although we try to. It causes a pain. It causes wounding. Listen, when we sin, there is a debt that needs to be paid. Now, Jesus paid for it on the cross, and he's more than willing to come and redeem that thing. But like Mary said yesterday, there's an appropriation. When we sin, we appropriate the blood of Jesus over that sin so that it can be swallowed up in him. <clears throat> See, we need to recognize a sin has been committed, and we're... But what we're saying in that overlook is that we're choosing to absorb the consequence and to treat them with grace anyway. Denial is refusing that anything even happen. We refuse to evaluate behaviors or words, and we just do life. God never asks us to pretend sin isn't real. The idea is when you're sinned against, keep going, keep the relationship moving, so far as it depends on you, Scripture says, Romans 12, 18. Be a, be a reconciler and a peacemaker as far as it depends on you. Now listen, what I'm not saying here is that there aren't times that we have to confront sin and love. But here's what I want to say. Anybody want to take a picture of that because I'm about to erase it? Okay. Um, here's what I want to say. 
in light of these two kingdoms, what begins to happen. This is how we play this out, right? I'm going to say this is the offender. This is us, right? They say something. I mean, sometimes isn't it the smallest thing that trips us up, right? You didn't, you know, we walk in a room and, oh, she didn't look at me and wave. I'm offended. Like, you know, whatever. Um, okay, so, <laughs> sorry. So we get offended, right? And the sad thing is, is sometimes they don't even know they've offended us, right? But in that offense, there's an offense, right? And so it creates this little wounding in us, right? But what do we do when we operate out of the kingdom of darkness and out of our flesh? We don't, we don't even sometimes consider God in the moment. We go for the juggler and we go right back here and say, you hurt me. You didn't even say hello to me. You blah, blah, blah. Well, what does that do? We've now become the offender. And now they're offended. And they didn't even know they needed to be offended from the beginning, right? And we get stuck in this cycle of looking for the offender to heal something in us. Not so in the kingdom of God. God intended. He knew. He said it. There's going to be offense that's going to come. But you are not on your own anymore. Go up. Go up and get this thing healed by the only healer there is. Come on, they are not your healer. Come on. They cannot. They will not. I'm going to give you an example of this. I was offended. Um, I guess I'm going to use this example. I was offended over and over as a child through molestation. I tried to stuff it away, didn't acknowledge it, didn't talk about it, didn't anything. 16, received Jesus as Lord and Savior, still feel all the baggage, all the, all the stuff, right? The fruit of, of that offense. When I'm about 35, the Lord shows up and he says, hey, uh, I want to talk to you about this. And I was like, nope. That is locked away. That is done. I'm good. It's all good. It's me and you, Jesus. It's all good. He said, no, you have an offense there, and I want you and I to talk about this. So I sit down in my office, and I'm <clears throat> sitting there, and I'm like, okay, yes. I'm ticked off, you know, that I even have to go there. And the Lord says, I want you to forgive this person. I want you to let it go, like really let it go, not just under the carpet. Come on, that's good. I want you to let it go. And I was like, no. They owe me. They robbed from me. They took something that was mine. And the Lord said, I know, babe, I know. But what you're looking for is not going to heal you. That's right. And I was like, well, what am I looking for? And he goes, this is what you want. You want them to publicly acknowledge that they did you wrong. And he said, so let's play out that scenario. So I'm sitting in my office, and literally, the people start marching in my imagination. The people start marching in my office. And one by one, they walk up to me and say, hey, my bad. Sorry about that. Shouldn't have done that. One after another. Hey, sorry about that. 
the Lord said, how is that healing you? And I went, it doesn't. Wow, that's good. It doesn't. And he goes, that's right, because you want them to be your healer, and they're not. I am your healer. Come to me. Let's let that go, and now come to me. And so I would go, I let that go. I let them one by one, I let them go. And I went up and said, but Lord, this wasn't right. Where do I get my innocence back? And he says, I got it for you. I've held it all along. You didn't ask for that. And they can't take what they didn't give you. Here it is, babe. Lord, what about my purity? And he said, I washed you white as snow. You are pure in my eyes. You couldn't be any whiter. I'm so proud of you right now. See, he is the only healer. And in a moment, he took the shame, the guilt, the, the, the torment. He took it because he is the only healer. Hmm. So he's not asking us to be in denial. The stuff happened. So I want us to consider four truths from that Proverbs 19.11. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. First of all, again, I'm going to reiterate, you will be sinned against. This verse is given to people who live in a fallen world where there is a lot of sin. There are no sinless people on earth. And Bill Johnson, I'm going to quote Bill Johnson right here, no poopless cows. See, if we... If we want to enjoy the benefits of beef and milk, we're going to have to put up with the poop, right? And so God loves his people. He's putting up with our poop, right? Because he loves us. He loves the relationship that we have. See, love has to pour itself out. It has to. By the very nature of love, God has to find some place to pour himself out. And he chose us. Number two, you will respond one way or another. We don't have to pretend sin doesn't hurt. The natural temptation is to be angry and unforgiving, to not um, get past it, to keep noticing it, to play it over again. And the first half of that verse says, wisdom makes you slow to anger. How you respond determines what kingdom you authorize to back you. And listen, when we choose the kingdom of God, all of heaven, with all its resources, all its angelic army, backs his kingdom. God will never back us when we choose the kingdom of darkness. He will stand there waiting for us to go, I need you. I need you. Like, I know there are things, right, that are not simple and easy. Like, like we joke about this, and we, we look at some of the, you know, little offenses that we have but there's some big there's some biggies out there right that's when we like the disciples say jesus increase my faith help me to choose you help me to know that you are the one that is going to bring the healing number three the verse implies that god is sovereign over these hurts yeah i don't like this verse much 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And number four, it is wise 
in the face of offense to consider patience. Patience is a virtue that produces something. It literally means beautiful adornment and is translated glory. Patience means to defer the capacity to accept or tolerate, to delay bearing pain without complaint and the ability to wait. Boy, that's going to be something Jesus is going to have to help us with. When we hold on to what we believe is right, is our right to hold and react to offense in our flesh, we by default cut off the ability to receive God's blessing, empowerment, and protection. When our hearts are full of self-response and worldly response, we cannot receive the kingdom provision for healing and restoration. So, for example, you and I will be tempted to treat the pain only and not the injury. It's the fox and the mouse, right? We'll be tempted to, to, to only treat the fox and not look at what's causing it. You try to cover the pain with pleasure however you measure it. Substance abuse, leisure abuse, social media, video games, fantasy worlds, websites, gossip. The temptation, the bait is endless. Even good things which aren't capable of healing those deep wounds. See, in the church, we, we find ministry to absorb all of it. we helping everyone else while our own hearts and our own worlds are falling apart. That's good. Come on. <clears throat> You'll try to be a very good person, thus showing in your self-righteousness that you're too good of a person to have been sinned against or offended. Number three, perhaps you'll want to retreat, throw up walls of self-protection and not let anyone in to hurt your heart again by creating vows like, I don't need anyone. No one will ever get that close to me again. I don't need any friends. I don't need that relationship. You may become a people pleaser, seeking others' approvals as ways of reassuring yourself of your worth. If your attitude is to avoid conflict, peace at all costs, you're fearing man, not God. Because God is not afraid of a good conflict. But in conflict, he fights very differently than what our flesh wants to. You may develop a mode of controlling others. Your sense of security comes from being in control, avoiding situations where you aren't in charge. These are decidedly not God's solutions. Most people, when offended by others, bristle with hostility, choose to be hurt, get indignant, bite back, and plot revenge. They have no discretion, and their feelings rule their hearts. They do not know deferment, for they react first, then think about it later. This is the mark of a proud forward spirit and is contrary to the wisdom, grace, and patience of God. Proverbs 28, 25 says, a proud man stirs up conflict, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. See, the world doesn't know the wisdom of that proverb. It honors people who will not put up with offense, people who will strike back quicker and harder than they've been struck. They glorify men and women that violently retaliate and get in the last retort or the last blow. They glorify. They glorify all this. Turn on the news for crying out loud. There isn't one word said that somebody isn't instantly retaliating. But God's mighty men and women are those who love mercy and can overlook personal offenses and ignore their own hurt and, or loss. Now listen to me. You have one that never ignores that hurt and pain. See, it's Jesus in the garden where he looks and he, and he sees the offense of mankind and he sees where that's going to take him. He sees what it's going to cost him, right? 
And he goes to the father and he says, Lord, if there's any other way, any other way, could we please do any other way? And the Lord says to him, pretty much, nope, this is, the cross is the way. And he yields over. Why could he yield over even to the point of sweat drops of blood? Because he knew the father's heart. He knew the father's heart was for him. He knew the father's heart was going to come to him. He knew. He knew the father. His confidence was in heaven. His confidence was in the healer. Micah 6.8 says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, David knew this as well. See, David was constantly a fence just flown in his face, right? Saul. But David choose, chose honor. He chose the way of God. He didn't take up his own defense. He had every opportunity to. And he chose to honor. So what if you have been genuinely mistreated? Do you have the right to be offended? Well, I just want us to consider for a second the life of Joseph. See, Joseph had plenty of opportunity to become offended and bitter. He was sold as the living dead man. He lost his inheritance. He lives knowing what could have been, right? Because the father already showed him the dream, right? No one was coming from his father, from his earthly father, because as far as his father knew, he was dead. The brothers told him. Lions ate him. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Joseph was still obeying God after 10 years of seeing nothing, right? He's still obeying God and then gets falsely accused and thrown into prison. The very thing he chose to flee from, he is being blamed for. And he's thrown in prison for doing the right thing. Psalm 105.17 says that it was God who sent Joseph ahead of them. I can't even wrap my mind around that sometimes. Joseph, in our measure, had every right to be offended by everyone, including God. So get this picture. Don't think the prison was like our prisons that we have. It was a dungeon. It was dark and damp. He was there two years, and his brothers were still enjoying his father's house. Come on, I'm offended for him, right? <laughs> Joseph had done nothing but obey God. And Micah 3 says this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just recap it. God is a refining fire. And it talks about two people groups. The first group says in the refinement, right? The first group says, what good is it that we have served God? They say it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements? But the second group says, going to speak, we're going to speak the word of God. They feared the Lord and they honored his name. Both groups were going through the same trials, but one group was keeping their eyes on God's faithfulness. They were not complaining. They were patiently waiting on God and trusting in his faithfulness to be faithful. David said, I feed myself on God's faithfulness. See, in the midst of offense, we can feed ourselves on God's faithfulness. He's coming. He's coming. If you don't see him yet, hang on. Be patient. He's coming. He is not a God that forsakes us. The only freedom that was not Joseph's and could not be taken, the only freedom that was not or could not be taken from Joseph was his ability to respond correctly to every circumstance, to not get offended. 
Joseph could have easily entertained the thoughts of what if. What if I didn't have these brothers? What if I had never shared this dream? I counsel people all the time that say life would have been a lot better for them if their parents had not fill in the blank. Or my husband or my wife isn't like fill in the blank. If my uncle, stranger, friend had not. If my pastor would have recognized my gifts. I am the way I am because of what blank did to me. Hear me. No man, no woman, no child, no stranger, no devil can get you out of the will of God for your life. There will be those that try through offense. See, Joseph's brothers made this statement. Come, let us now therefore kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall say what will become of his dreams. They mistakenly thought they were going to destroy the call of God on his life. Nobody can do that. There is only one person that can destroy the call of God on your life, and that's you and I. When we refuse, when we, when we step into the other kingdom, right? We are in a time where offenses are increasing. People are so very thin-skinned. Light offense, darkness. Just by being who you are, you're going to offend those out there. And we're going to have to learn how to respond to their offense with the light that's in us. And I'm telling you, we haven't done a very good job of that. I mean, look at how we're reaching the homosexual. Look at how we're reaching those that have uh, committed abortions. Look how we're reaching those that don't think the way that we think. We stink at it. We're not responding properly to their being offended with the light that we carry. And God says there's another way. There's a superior way. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, and I'm closing. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Would you close your eyes? Father, just like the disciples, we ask, increase our faith in this area. God, help us, Lord, to choose a better way, to choose your way, God. Give us the ministry, God, of reconciliation, not just for ourselves, God, but for those around us. So just ask him right where you're at. Am I offended, Lord? Am I offended with you? Stay in that prayerful place. I want to give you a tangible example um, from my own life. Um, About five years ago, my oldest son and his wife were expecting their first child, and at 20 weeks, went into the doctor and got a very bad report. The report was that this child was not going to survive outside the womb. And they were crushed. And I saw the pain and the level of hurt in their life that I, as a mother, would have given my own life to fix and heal. And there was a particular day that I had gone and... uh, We had chosen from that moment to celebrate as long as that child was in the womb, she was alive, right? 
And so we chose in that moment to celebrate life. We didn't know how many days she would have, whatever, and we chose. We just chose. We just chose. And we were standing in that place, and I had gone down to go in with them to a sonogram just to see her little body kick and move and her little heartbeat. And, and uh, I'll never forget, I got in the car to come home, and in the same breath, I'm grieving with them, and my other child calls and says, hey, Mom, we're expecting a baby. Now, this is the same couple, my other son, who had already experienced two miscarriages. So I'm straddled in this place of going, I'm celebrating over here, I'm grieving over here, and I feel like this ping pong ball just going back and forth. And all of a sudden, this onslaught of just demonic accusation comes flying in the car as I'm driving home. And the enemy says this, hey, didn't you lay, your down, lay down your life to serve God and to pray for those that need healing? And I went, yes. He said, hey, don't you week after week go in and pray and watch God do miraculous things? Yeah, I do. And then it came. And this is how he's going to repay you? He hasn't healed your granddaughter? You have faith? You're believing? And I literally, for a brief second, went, and I literally, I, was, I don't know how I didn't roll the car. I was going 70 miles an hour when this onslaught was coming, right, in seconds. And I threw that car to the side of the road. I threw it in park, and I said, let me tell you something. I may not know how this ends, uh, this side, but I know how this ends. He is God. He is sovereign. This child is loved. It is received. It is a blessing. And this child belongs to him. And here's what I know. I will not get an agreement with you over the heart of my father. He is a good God. And I may not know anything else, but he is good. He is good. He is good. And if that's all you can scream in the face of offense, I don't know how this is going to walk out. I don't know how you're going to fix this. I don't know how you're going to heal this. But you are good. Your ways are better. Then we've got to get there. And so I literally would get in my car and just start saying, Lord, for months, for months, when we held that baby in our arms and they had to say goodbye, we held her and said, God, you are good. And you give and you take away. But you are always good. We have an eternal hope. This is not our end. The stuff here is not our end. We really can let this stuff go because he is better. So, Father, we ask, would you show us, Lord, any place the accuser has come to accuse us and to convince us with the bait, God, to take up an offense? And God, would you deal with us in your mercy and grace? Lord, I just declare over us, God, as we bring that offense to you, God, as we bring the hurt to you, God, 
There is no condemnation. Father, set our hearts free. It's in your son's name we ask. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand for just a minute and stretch your legs. Do a few exercises, jumping jacks. Reach over to your neighbor and rub their back or something. Now you're, now you're feeling it, aren't you? Yeah, just get your blood circulating because we don't, we're not giving you breaks because we don't trust that you're going to come back anytime soon, you know. Whew. You guys doing good? Yes. All right, you go ahead and have a seat. Unless you said I, I need a few more minutes in the upright position. And, uh, and if you do, yeah, a lot of people took a break. They don't realize all the good stuff's happened right at the beginning. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> really, you missed the first five minutes. You missed the whole tone of what this, this session is going on. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> In the, the time that I have with you, this session and the uh, second session in the uh, afternoon, I'm going I'm to be talking about re removing attachments. It's about removing unwanted attachments. Uh, attachments that we have with, with people that simply uh, kind of hold us down and, and keep us from moving forward and keep us from flowing into our destiny of what God has called us to walk into. So, uh, this first one, and I, I'm going to, this one, this, the first one I'm going to talk about soul ties. Basically, detaching our, our, ourselves from people that we have somehow knitted ourselves to. And with soul ties, there, there are several kinds of soul ties that we have. And this afternoon, we're going to talk about one, about fear bonds, and simply just removing the fear bonds that we have where we're simply living out of the place of fear. And how to move from a fear bond and move into a love bond, and living into a place of love relationships, and flowing in life-giving relationships, and, and basically removing all of the fear that would simply keep us debilitated. So that, that's one type of a soul attachment that, that we could have. So we'll deal with that this afternoon. There's also a soul, soul attachments that we have with, with fantasy and things like that. And, uh, but we're not really going to get into that one. But, but one of the things that we're in, we're in a culture that which we're more and more beginning to have to relate to people and minister to people who are, who've really, who are coming out of some sort of a sexual bondage or sexual history. And so we really need to know how to help them move forward if this has been part of their life. 
and simply just, you know, get, get a kind of like a fresh start. So, so this kind of where I'm going to focusing on, you know, in, in this time, and, and then there's another area that we're going to deal with in, in the year of generational stuff, okay, before we take our lunch break. I was, uh, in the 1980s, I, I pastored on the West Coast for 32 years. And uh, even though I'm, we're, my wife and I are originally from Texas and Oklahoma, you know, we were like missionaries on the West Coast, I guess you can say. <laughs> on the left side of the country. In more than one way. So in, in the, uh, the first eight and a half years, we pastored up in Washington State, and, and we had a, like a leaders retreat, and at this leaders retreat, there was a guy by, by the name of Peter Lord, who was a pastor down in Titusville, Florida, who came and was leading this pastor's retreat, and, and one of the things he talked about was the breaking of soul ties. It's the first time I'd ever heard that teaching, and, and I thought it was really interesting, and, and uh and, and my wife thought it was very interesting as well. I, when she got back, she shared it with some of the ladies in the church. And, 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 uh, and I remember we had, we, I had a men's breakfast that we had like every week. And one of the young men, was, he was a, an executive at uh, Microsoft actually, was in my group. And usually, you know, he, as soon as the thing, we said the final prayer or whatever, he was... He was uh, you know, we're at a restaurant. When we said the, the final thing, he's gone. He's, you know, he's gone to work. And this day, he hung around. And, I, you know, okay, there's, there's a reason why. Something's going on with this guy. So everybody's left, and I said, so what's going on? You know, he says, well, your wife was talking to my wife. And she was telling me about these soul ties and breaking soul ties. And, you know, when I was in college, I had a, you know, sexual relationship with this young gal and, and everything. But anyway, my wife told me that I needed to address that with you. And so I'm here. He wasn't like, like a real willing participant. So I led him in a very brief prayer, a brief prayer that was like this. Lord, in your name, I ask that, that the blood of Jesus will begin to separate us, and I send back to this person everything that I took in this one flesh union with them, and I call back to me everything that I gave in this one flesh union and declare the blood of Jesus separates us in Jesus, you know, in his name. Well, he, I just led him in that very simple prayer, and Afterwards, he goes, whoa. I said, what? And he goes, I, I felt that. And I go, you did? You know, like, <laughs> like it, it, it really worked? <laughs> Genesis says this in Genesis chapter 2, 23 and 24. It says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. And for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that passage is quoted several times in the New Testament. 
in, in the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, Ephesians, uh, also quotes it. But Jesus would add this particular statement in Matthew 19. He says, consequently, there are no longer flesh, one flesh but two, and whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. So in other words, he's talking about really coming into oneness in flesh, into one flesh. And most of us, when we, do, we read that passage, we're thinking, okay, this is what happens when God joins a man and a woman together in marriage. You know, they, they're joined together in marriage, and so th that's the way God designed it to be. One man, one woman, they become one flesh. And, uh, and so, you know, we think of this sometimes in the context of marriage, and we could think that way if it weren't for Paul the Apostle that kind of messed that thinking up. Where he says this in 1 Corinthians 6.16, he says, or do you not know that when one joins himself to a harlot is one body with her, for he says the two shall become one flesh. So in other words, he's talking about you're not entering into a covenant with this other person. You're not entering into a marriage relationship with this person. Basically, you've just had sex with this person, and because of that, you are now one flesh with this person. Two verses later, he says, run away from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. You know, it, with, with some temptation we can resist, and other temptations we run away. That's good. Run. Run. Away. <laughs> and sexual temptation is one in which we do that. Because our bodies were created in such a way for sex. It's a, it's a part of our relationship that we have with, with our spouse. God designed it in, in a certain way to be actually a blessing for the marriage relationship. You see, when, the way that God designed it, the way that God put it together is that, you know, when a man and a woman decide that, you know, God, God has called us together, they enter into a contract and a covenant with, with each other. You know, we just call this like a marriage ceremony or something like that. But in different cultures express it in different ways. But in other words, but I made a decision that make a commitment and a covenant with you. That's the way it's supposed to work, by the way. And then, and then after that, that decision and the covenant has been made, and then we consummate that relationship, you know, through, through sexual activities. And at that time, I become joined with that person, body, soul, and spirit. I, I get connected with that person, body, soul, and spirit. And then we, we, we you know, of course, we separate physically, and then I am now, you know, connected with that person in my soul. So God designed it in such a way, you know, to, to, to keep us together and to keep us connected that we would actually be bonded to our spouse in our souls. All the way through body, soul, and spirit. But, you know, that I'm connected with this other person so that as we go through life, we stay connected. And one of the, one of the things that keeps us is connected is really that sexual activity. Because as we continue to connect ourselves in that sexual activity, I continue to stay bonded to my spouse. 
So that's the way kind of God designed it, that we would simply, you know, you know, in, you know, have this sexual interaction throughout our life, throughout our whole life, that we'd have this, this, this sexual interaction, and whenever we do, then, then basically we're continue to stay bonded to our spouse. So this one flesh thing actually is a real, real blessing to those who have a relationship with, with you know, in, in the marriage context. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a real blessing. But it's a real curse to those when it's outside of the, ma the, the marriage context. And you see, God's not going to compromise His ways in order to accommodate our sin. He's not going to say, okay, well, it, 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 you don't have to be bonded to this person. No, it's, it's going to happen because God designed it in such a way so that we will stay, stay bound and, and, and bonded to our to our soulmate throughout through our whole life. But the problem comes is that whenever we have engaged in, in sexual activity with people who, who, you know, who are not our spouse, either prior to marriage or even during marriage or, you know, or, or whatever, you know, that basically becomes something that really rips and tears at us on the inside. And sometimes you can't even hardly move past that person. They're, you're still stuck with that person mentally and emotionally until you cut the soul tie with them. I know of a young lady who basically, she, she was a believer. He was not. He was not the nicest person in the world, but yet because of their sexual activity, she couldn't get over him, get, couldn't get past him. Ended up, going, ended up marrying this guy, and it didn't turn out good. But because of that soul tie, she couldn't get free of him. <laughs> the enemy exploits this. Because as we become tied with that person in their soul... We also open up ourselves to the things that that person carries. To all of the garbage and all of the things that, that is tied with that person. We actually can open ourselves up to the stuff that that person carries. And especially if you're doing this thing illegally, in other words, outside of the context of marriage, in that moment, you're not spiritually protecting yourself. I mean, you're not saying, okay, before we do this thing, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we just cover us and protect us. I mean, you're not, you're not doing that <laughs> if you're having illegal sexual activity. So, so it's not like you get their demons, but there are some things. That you're, you do open yourself up to some of the stuff that that person carries because you become attached to that particular person through that, through that activity. Now, I know oftentimes when I get to that point, some people freak out and they go, oh, no. You know, especially if your husband or your, your wife is not a believer. You know, some people may freak out and go, oh, no. I'm getting my husband's cooties or something like that, you know. <laughs> but I got a good verse for you. It's found in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. 
where it says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. In other words, you, what you carry infects the other person. So you're not getting their cooties. They happen to, you, they happen to be getting your glory. That's the way it works. I mean, like in the old covenant, you didn't get, you didn't, you stayed away from the lepers because you don't get leprosy. In the new covenant, you touch the lepers and they're healed. So you actually carry something. So you actually bring an invasion of the glory of the Lord into, into the relationship. So you don't have to be afraid. You're, you're not getting anything from them. You're giving, you're giving them what you carry. So don't walk in fear. Now, here, here's, here's what the scripture says in Psalm 23, verse 3. It says that he restores my soul. So God is in the business of restoring souls. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, your soul, and your body be preserved complete. That is coming. In other words, God is in the business of, of restoring, sanctifying, bring us in the wholeness. So, since restoration of the soul is the intention of the Lord, then there must be a way to bring restoration of the soul that's been fragmented in unholy sexual soulless relationships. Based on the intention of God for soul restoration and the dilemma of soul fragmentation by unholy sexual unions, we deduce God, permit, God grants permission and authority to call our souls into holy alignment. We then confidently ask the Lord to restore our souls into wholeness and to restore what we have lost or what we've given away that rightfully belongs to us. So what we're going to do in just a moment, we're just going to, I'm going to lead you in this very simple prayer of simply bringing everything to alignment. Now, first of all, let me say that when we do this, everybody's going to participate whether you need to or not. Because I'm not going to say all who need to do this stand, okay? <laughs> Secondly, do not mention the person's name. If you're needing to do this, do not say the name, especially if you're sitting next to your spouse. <laughs> if you are divorced and there is a chance of reconciliation, do not do this. Because this may be one of the things that keeping you connected. However, if you've divorced and you've gone your separate ways, your life has moved on and, and there's no way that this thing's going to ever be restored, then yeah, go, you feel free to do that. If your spouse is deceased, according to what I understand in Romans chapter 7, you know that whenever the death is occurred, the contract is done, you don't necessarily need to do this. However, I was teaching this in, in Camarillo, California, and, a, and an elderly lady came up to me and she says, you know, my husband died. I couldn't. I, I grieved and grieved and grieved and, and really past the time I should be grieving. I, I, I couldn't get over it until I broke the soul tie. Then I was able to move on. So I said, okay. It's, it's not necessary, but if it's helpful, do it. Okay? So let's stand. And repeat after me. In the authority of Jesus, I plead the blood of Jesus to stand between me and this person and separate the one flesh union. I send back to them 
everything that I took from them when I became one flesh with them. I call back to me everything that I gave in this one flesh union. And I declare the blood of Jesus to be a wall of separation between us. Thank you, Jesus, for restoring my soul. You can go ahead and be seated. We do this one at a time for every person. This is not like I do it one, one size fits all, you know, like for every person. In other words, you can't do group things because you didn't have sex in a group thing, okay? It, it was one at a time, so you do it one at a time. And you do it to the ones that the Lord brings back to your mind. And sometimes he, does, he brings them all back. What, after this, we had like a women's aglow that was meeting in our church. And we had a lady who was a, actually came out of prostitution. And she said, you know, she actually taught on this particular topic. And she, her conclusion was this, that the Lord brought back to her every John either by face or by name. She said, because I had lost myself, I'd lost, I'd given myself away so many times that I lost who I was and didn't know who I was. And she said, I was calling back my identity and who I was. You know, but, I, but we don't want to put ourselves under bondage or condemnation. You, you, you ask the Holy Spirit to bring all those people back to you. If he's not bringing them back, don't beat yourself up. Okay. I, I was teaching this in England, and uh, after we did this, a lady comes up to me and she goes, "Oh no, oh no, I, I misunderstood. I, I broke the soul tie with my husband." I said, "You know, honey, that's okay. You can fix that tonight." All right, let's, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about generational things. Now, let me, you need to understand something. The way that God designed, God designed that the generational would, blessing would flow from generation to generation. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of generations, and he actually created generational blessings to go for a thousand generations that would flow down generational lines. He also designed it in such a way that the next generation would also carry the, the, the blessing of the previous generation in a way that it multiplied. For example, here Aaron was, a, he was anointed at, as the high priest. And he had his own high priestly robe. Even though all of his sons had, had, were given robes, he had the high priestly robe. And so he was anointed. And of course, you know, it says that the oil flowed down off of his head, flowed off his beard, and flowed upon his robe. And so now his robe carried the fragrance of the anointing of Aaron. Aaron died. They take off the high priestly robe. It goes on his son, Eliezer. So Eliezer now has, has this, this, this high priestly robe. They anoint him. And when they anoint him, it flows off of the, his, his head, off of his beard, flows into the robe. And now it has the fragrance of Aaron, his, his anointing, plus Eliezer's anointing. He dies. His son Phineas. he becomes the high priest. 
He, they're anointed with, they anoint him. His, the oil rolls off his head, off his beard, into the robe. Now he carries the fragrance of Aaron, Eliezer, and his own. You see, this is the way God designed for anointing to flow. It, 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 he designed in such a way that we would walk in a greater anointing than our parents and our grandparents did. I mean, that's the way God designed it. The, he, the, that the anointing it would flow. You know, so that our, our children don't start from the beginning. They start from our ceiling. That's the, way that it's, that's the way God designed generational blessings to flow. So actually, God created a highway that blessings would, would flow down, callings would go down, so that you can live from inheritance rather than have to start all over. Spiritual inheritance. You know, all the things that were bought and paid for in a previous generation that they bought and paid for, they suffered for, things that, that they worked for, you now get to receive it as inheritance. And inheritance is not something you earn, it's something that you receive. So we have that, that's the way God designed it to go, that blessings would flow down there. But there's something else that the enemy uses that thing of generational simply to bring entrapments. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, also found in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. It says, God is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. And like what Sherry said, if it's not dealt with in that generation, then there is a reaping and a sowing that will happen in, in, in the next generations. And the enemy looks at that and he says, there's a loophole. You've simply opened the right. Ezekiel 18 said it's not right. And it's illegal. But the enemy, how do you know he doesn't play fair? He breaks every rule if he can. The thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, if he can find an inroad, even though it's not a legal right, he thinks it's a legal right, he will, he will basically try to exploit it as much as he could. I was born with a spirit of rage. It's like, I, when I was young, I thought it was just part of who I was. I had this rage growing up. From my earliest memories, I had this, this rage. It would get set off from time to time. I, my kindergarten told my mom, we had kindergarten in our church, my, where my dad was a pastor. She told my mom, you know, I have wore out more fly swatters on Rodney than any other kid I've ever had. I got more spankings than all of my siblings put together in school when they used to spank. My last one was when I was in 11th grade. I was, uh, I, I was able to exploit that rage. I excelled in football, played my way through, paid my way through college, in other sports and activities. So in some, in some ways, it became my friend. If you got rage, you actually can control your environment, control things around you, and control people around you. 
But I had all my life. My mom used to beat it down with scripture. She just quoted this. She quoted scripture, and all I remember, it just rage was on the inside, but I could do nothing except submit to what she said. But it's like, how did I get this? Well, my grandpa, Joe Howard, he had spirit of rage. Uh, I don't know if his dad had the spirit of rage or not because we never knew my great-grandpa because he was murdered. Butcher knife down the middle of his head. Before my grandpa was born. Somehow I think there might have been rage involved in that particular situation. I'm just, just a guess on my part. My Uncle Joe, Joe Howard, named after my grandpa Howard, he had a spirit of rage. In fact, his was so bad that he was institutionalized because of it. They had, he had had an accident earlier in life, and they kind of blamed it on that. But, but his got so bad that when he would go into this fit of rage, he was uncontrollable. And they actually kind of worked out a system that when he would go into this rage, that my aunt would take the two younger brothers and go off and just so they wouldn't be hurt. And, and then my, you know, uh, or my mother did that, and then my aunt would go out into the field, get grandpa who would come in to try to talk him down. And it got to where they couldn't talk him down anymore, that the only way they can calm him down was to hit him as hard as he could, knock him out. And that's when they decided they needed to institutionalize him. Which being in a mental institution in the 1930s was not a good place to be. God did heal my Uncle Joe. He wrote my grandparents and said, come get me. God has healed me. They didn't believe it. But Uncle Joe had two great aunts that were praying aunts, both in their 90s, able to invade heaven, hear from God. God spoke to them after he, they, he healed him. And they wrote my grandparents and said, go pick up Joe. God told us that he healed him. And God had healed him. So that was Joe Howard and Joe Howard Jr. Well, my name is Rodney Howard Hogue. I, I got the family name and somehow I got the family demon. <laughs> the good news is I did get free from that. The first year I was pastoring in 1982, God set me free from that because I can tell you this, that pastoring and having a spirit of rage do not work well together. It was, hard, it was hard for me to get rid of because it had become my friend. Just, Lord, take this away from me. It just wasn't working. I had to get to the place where I was desperate. And said, Lord, I'll do anything to get rid of this. And that's the time where God made, you know, set me free from this. But we need to understand the way covenants work and the way that God honors covenants. And even covenants that God did not initiate, that is not even part of his will, God will honor the covenants that we, come, that we put ourselves into. Illustration. Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. Israel enters into a covenant with the Gibeonites. They remember the Gibeonites? Remember, God already told them, do not make any covenant with anybody in the land. I mean, so it wasn't the will of God for them to make any covenant with anybody in the land. So these Gibeonites deceived Joshua. They put on old clothes. 
they took the stalest bread that they could find, and they, and they go to Joshua, and they go, Joshua, we've heard about you. And we, we want to, you know, to enter into a covenant with you. And, of course, Joshua said, you don't live here in this land, do you? And they go, oh, no. You know, we live a long ways away. You see, you see these clothes? They were brand new when we started our journey. This bread, it was fresh out of the oven. We have journeyed a long, 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 long way. And we're, no, we're not here. So he enters into this covenant with these people because he didn't acquire the Lord. Then he finds out they live right over the hill. But they already entered into a covenant. And of course, I would have thought, well, it's illegal because they deceived us. But actually, once they entered into the covenant, God honored the covenant that they made. Next chapter, Joshua chapter 10, five kings get mad at the Gibeonites, and they come after the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites go to Joshua, and they go, Joshua, remember the covenant that we made? We've got these five kings, so we need you to help us go into battle. And so they, basically, because they were bound by covenant, they did that. And that's the day that it says that, that the sun actually stood still so that they could finish the battle and defeat these five kings. Fast forward. 2 Samuel chapter 21. David is now king. They've experienced a three-year drought. It's not good. David inquires of the Lord, okay, what's going on? Why are we having this three-year drought? And the Lord speaks to the prophet and basically says this. The reason you're experiencing the drought is because Saul violated the covenant with the Gibeonites. So let's think about this. How many generations between Joshua and King David? You know, about, about 500 years of covenants, were, um, 500 years of generations were there. So here we find in a covenant that was actually not one that God sanctioned, not one that God put together, but basically made out of the will of God, out of God's order, but yet God honored that covenant. And it went from generation to generation to generation all the way to King David. And so King David basically goes to the Gibeonites and says, okay, how can we make this right? And the Gibeonites say, give us seven descendants of Saul. So he gives them seven descendants, but it says that he, could not, he would not give them Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. And Jonathan had a covenant with David. So in other words, what protected Mephibosheth is that there was a greater covenant that was made. A greater covenant that superseded any other previous covenants that were made. And because of that greater covenant... Mephibosheth was living under the protection of the greater covenant. Therefore, the old covenant did not apply to them anymore. Are you seeing sort of a picture here? Now, I'm going to read to you out of, out of Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28 in the New Century Version. This is a messianic passage. So he starts off in verse 14. He says, listen 
to the Lord's message, you who brag, you leaders in Jerusalem, you say we've made an agreement with death. We have a contract with death. When terrible punishment passes by, it won't hurt us. Our lies will keep, our, keep us safe and our tricks will hide us. And that's what happens if there, when there's a covenant made in the previous generation. It is a covenant. It is a contract. Either knowingly or even unknowingly, it was made in a previous generation. That is actually giving protection to the demonic and the affliction that the, that, that the demonic are really, you know, harassing you with because they're saying that was that is a legal protection that is a legal covenant and therefore I'm basically living under that legal covenant and, and you cannot you cannot touch me so it's providing protection to the darkness but things change because this is a messiah a messianic passage it says because of these things, this is what the Lord says. I will put a stone in the ground in Jerusalem, a tested stone. Everything will be built on this important precious rock, or literally cornerstone. And anyone who trusts in it will never be disappointed. He's talking about the coming Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. He says, and I will use justice as a measuring line and goodness as a standard. And the lies you hide behind will be destroyed as if by hail. They'll be washed away as if in a flood. Your agreement with death will be erased. Your contract with death will not help you. And when terrible punishment comes, you will be crushed by it. In other words, it's, it's like, okay, this contract seems to be in effect. This covenant seems to be in effect until there's a greater covenant. But when I come into a relationship with Jesus, I have now entered into a blood covenant with Jesus. And the blood covenant that I have, you know, which is sealed by the blood of Jesus, is greater than any other covenants that's been made in my behalf. It's even greater than any covenant that I may make on my own. His is the greater covenant. So therefore, because I have a greater covenant, I can ask the Lord to abolish, to render inoperative any previous covenants or contracts that was made in my behalf. And because this covenant is so great, I can even break any covenant that I've made with darkness. Because it covers everything. So in other words, all of those covenants made in my, my behalf, once I come into a relationship with Jesus, they are illegal. Come on, that's good. They are illegal. They have no right to me anymore. Now, let me tell you something about our enemy. Just because he doesn't have the right to doesn't mean that he stops until we enforce the work of the cross. Some things actually require enforcement. And, and, the, and the dilemma here is that we need to understand what things are automatic and what things have to be enforced. When I come into a relationship with Jesus, there's a lot of things that are automatic. I mean, I'm forgiven of all my sin. Heaven is in my future. I mean, there's all, some things that are absolutely automatic. But then there's some things that I have to enforce in the good fight of faith. And one of these is simply, I have to simply just remove the enemy from anything they're hiding under to try to gain an entrance into my life. 
And so sometimes when we're ministering to people, we can't find any open door that they have actually opened themselves. But if we look up their family line, we're going to find some things that are going to be in common. Well, that's the O'Malley's. You know, the O'Malley's, they all have a temper, you know. <laughs> okay. Certain sicknesses, you look up your family line. They're just coming down, down the family line. The enemy has learned how to exploit the highway. So what we do, we simply go to the Lord, we go to the courts of heaven, and we say, God, according to my covenant with you, I ask you just to open up the books of my past of every covenant that my forefathers entered into on my behalf. That's giving protection to the demonic around me. And look at these, Father, and see if these if any of these are not absolutely just and righteous, and if they're not, annul them and release the affliction of the demonic off of me. You see, that passage in Isaiah basically says this. He said, I will use justice as a measuring line and goodness as a standard. So in other, in other words, if there are righteous covenants that were made in my, in my behalf, I want the benefit of every righteous covenant that was made. Every promise that God made to a previous generation about their succeeding generation, I want the fulfillment of that promise. I want to bring that and pull that down to me. But if they're unrighteous covenants, God break them and annul them. And then I'm going to ask for some retribution. Punitive damages. When the thief is found, he, you know, he has to get back what is stolen. Job was like two times, and, the, and there's a passage in Proverbs that says seven times, so I'm going to go for the higher number. What the enemy has stolen. The other thing that we have done is that when we make judgments against our parents, we actually shut off the generational highway. Judgments against our parents or our grandparents or maybe our parents made judgments against their parents. And what happens because of those judgments that were made, that, that highway has gotten clogged up. So it's gotten kind of muddled. So what is happening, when, you know, when I... I find myself starting over rather than starting at the floor, I mean at the ceiling of, of, of my parents and my grandparents. And God wants to open up the generational highway to us. And he wants to be like a, like a sieve that, that basically now blocks any of the generational curses that would come down to us, but also have enough opening that all the generational blessings would begin to flow through us. So what we're going to do, we're going to open up the generational lines. We're going to start off with the fourth generation because that's really the passage that we read. The sins of the fathers, 
go to the third and the fourth generations. We're going to start with the fourth generation. So this is going to sound very repetitive. But we're doing it one at a time so I can be a little bit more thorough rather than just the general prayer. You know, a lot of times I'm ministering to somebody, I may just use, use the general prayer. But if the Lord says, no, we need to be very thorough in this process. So we're going to start with the fourth generation, go to the third, the second, then the first, and then, then basically, you know, cut anything off that would go to our descendants. And as we do this together, I want you to pay attention if you feel something or if you get rattled in a particular generation. Because you might need to do a little bit of investigating because God may, this may be God saying to you, I want you to investigate that one, that generation in particular, so that you can be very specific and be very thorough in cutting things off from that particular generation. And then we're just going to receive the blessings, okay? So let's stand. So we'll start with the fourth generation, which is our great-great-grandparents. So repeat after me. In the name of Jesus, name of Jesus I, t- I declare the blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus to stand between me and the fourth generation as a wall of separation. I cancel every assignment of darkness. I remove every right of the demonic to afflict me because of the sin of, of the fourth generation. And I call to me my righteous inheritance and blessings of the fourth generation. Okay, we're going to do the third. This is our great-grandparents. In the name of Jesus, I declare the blood of Jesus to stand between me and the third generation as a wall of separation. I cancel every assignment of darkness. I remove every right of the demonic to afflict me because of the sin of the third generation. And I call to me my righteous inheritance and the blessings of the third generation. Okay, the next is going to be grandparents. But let me just say this to you. Even though that parent, grandparent, great-grandparent was a scoundrel, even though they were just ungodly scoundrels, they were like a worse sort of a person, they still had a godly inheritance that was their, their inheritance that they would have claimed it. And so you're actually calling on what they didn't take possession of. You can still get what they did not take possession of. You can still pull it down. What, even if your parents were like just really, you know, ungodly people, you can... They didn't claim that inheritance. You can take what they didn't claim. We, we, we just opened that up. So listen, our, our grandparents, in the name of Jesus, I declare the blood of Jesus to stand between me and my grandparents as a wall of separation. I cancel every assignment of darkness. I remove every right of the demonic to afflict me because of the sin of my grandparents. And I call to me my righteous inheritance and the blessings of my grandparents. Kids to our parents. In the name of Jesus, 
I declare the blood of Jesus to stand between me and my parents as a wall of separation. I cancel every assignment of darkness. I remove every right of the demonic to afflict me because of the sin of my parents. And I call to me my righteous inheritance and the blessings of my parents. Let's do one more. In the name of Jesus, I declare the blood of Jesus to stand between me and my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, and all my descendants as a wall of separation. I cancel every assignment of darkness. I remove every right of the demonic to afflict my descendants because of my sin. And I give my descendants my righteous inheritance and my blessing. I just want you to open your hands up in a posture of receiving. Because we've just opened up a highway of generational blessings that flow from a thousand generations. Just receive. If you can see it up your family line, if you see any blessing up your family line, you can, you can, you can call on it now. So just look, just look up your family line. There are gifts and anointings. There are callings that are on your family line. I mean, some of you are going to wake up in the morning, and all of a sudden this prophetic stuff is going to be activated on you. You're going to see into the things of the Spirit. You're going to see things that you hadn't seen before. And it's because up in your family line, It was, it was something that was a covenant that was made that they would be descendants of seers. Evangelism. Some of you are just going to be the gift of evangelism been, been, been held down on you. It's going to get released. Certain anointings and callings, blessings. There's a, for some of you, there's a prosperity anointing for making money. And you found yourself having ideas, pursuing it, and the enemy just steals from you left and right, and everything gets disabled right as it's getting ready to get birth. But it's a prophetic call and a prophetic anointing. He's disabled it in previous generations, but now he wants to open that up in you for you to live in that place of prosperity. I mean, just think about it. You know, some thousand years ago, some little lady in a little hut someplace in Europe having an encounter with God and God speaks to her and says, your descendants shall. And you are that descendant. Increase it, Lord. Increase it. Giftings. Power. Healing. Healing anointings. Deliverance anointings. Lord, just begin to release them now. Release them, Lord. All your gifts. 
all your gifts, all you promised, all the callings. Just flood us, Lord. Flood us. Flood us. We will not be able to reach our world with, with a single generational anointing. We need multiple generational anointings. Just the favor of what was bought and paid for in the previous generation, Lord, we receive that right now. Just let it come. Let it come. Some of you are not going to be the same tomorrow. Some of you are not going to be the same when you walk out here today. Inheritance is not something you earn. It's something you just receive. Somebody else already bought and paid for that. Somebody in another generation sacrificed for it so that you can walk in it. Just receive. Just receive. Just receive. Some of you, it's just a new levels of authority. Authority. In Luke chapter 19, one was faithful with money, and they gave him authority over cities. And the new levels of jurisdiction where you can exercise authority that are coming to you. Just reveal those. And Lord, I just ask for some revelation. Lord, revelation of what you're giving us. What presence, Lord, we, are we opening right now? Just show us. Give us visions, pictures. Maybe it may be an emotion or even a feeling. Or maybe you just might just know it. It's just, it's yours. Yours. Just receive it. Just receive. Just receive. Some of you are getting governmental anointings. Some of you have like a kingly, ruling, anointing up your heritage, up your generational lines. Just receive. I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to bless you. And then, if you, I'm just going to turn it over because we're going to have a lunch break. Whoever's going to give those instructions, whatever's going on with that. 
Lord, we just claim the blessing, that even the blessing that you gave, the ironic blessing that the Lord, where he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So, so that, Lord, we will put your name everywhere that we go and that we can be a blessing. We desire to receive every generational blessing that would come to us. We thank you, Jesus, that your covenant is greater than any other covenant that was made in our behalf. That your blood is once for all sufficient that we can appeal to and we can rest in. And that the enemy has no right to us at all. I ask you just simply just to cut any sickness that was in a previous generation that's been transferred down. Conditions, diabetes, heart problems. Break all of those off, Lord Jesus. Remove them off of us. Alcoholism. Father, break that off from generation to generation, Lord, that they no longer can be touched by them. Mental illness. Break that off. Break it off. Lord, you haven't given us that because you've given us a sound mind, you say. And so we just become great receivers today. Great receivers of how you designed for us to walk in. And we ask, Lord, that we exponentially walk in greater anointings. Greater anointing, Lord, because it is to be multiplied through generation. And, Lord, that, and that starts a thousand generations ago. Well, there are a lot of promises of our family tree. And, Lord, we don't want to miss out on any of those. In your name.